what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. This podcast was recorded remotely, and while we try our best to produce good quality recordings, there are sometimes glitches. Please bear this in mind and forgive us. Polly Toynbee is a left-wing journalist and broadcaster, probably best known as being a columnist on The Guardian since 1998, and often writing on issues that concern humanists, from ethical issues like assisted dying, to the rise of religious fundamentalism, education in state schools, equality, human rights and secularism. In 2007, she won Columnist of the Year at the British Press Awards and was formerly the Social Affairs Editor at the BBC. Most importantly, she's a former president and current vice president of Humanists UK. Polly, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you're best known as a a campaigning journalist. So obviously you write and you broadcast, but you do it with a purpose. You've got views and you're expressing them and you're campaigning for change. What was it that took you in that direction in your life and, and, and what is it that sustains you in it? Well, I think I've always come from a family that was long ago liberal, uh, then Labour, since the foundation of the Labour Party, that has always campaigned, often quite miserably feeling that they were campaigning for lost causes. <laughs> Yet often in the long run, some of those co- those causes were mostly won. But nevertheless, they saw themselves always as up against the establishment. They were always the outsiders. They always saw themselves as, they were, as uh, on the side of the underdog. They were middle class forever. As far as I know, I don't think I have a single working class root in me. They were academics and writers and teachers and professors going back many, many generations. And, uh, but always on the, uh, on the red side and always fighting against what they saw as this blue wall of, of, of establishment that was mm. against reforms of any kind at all. And so you, you took it in sort of as mother's milk almost is what you're saying. It was in, it's in your family, it's in your culture, your home Absolutely. culture. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, my father was one of the founders of CND. I was taking on CND marches at a very young age. One of my first political experiences was can remember as a child, my father throwing people out of the house over sueys. Uh, people never spoke to again. Um, so wow. everything was refracted through uh, the politics of the day, always. Um, I was, you know, brought up breathing politics and causes and rage with conservatism. And was there ever a moment when you consciously sort of committed yourself to that? Because we all, when we're younger, question the things we've been brought up with. And do you have a moment when you questioned it and then thought, no, actually, this is right? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I suppose there was some cause I took up that that uh, family did and didn't agree with. There were splits at various times. I mean, I joined, for instance, I left the Labour Party and joined the SDP. That caused a big rift with my father, who thought that was a big mistake. My father was, was dying at the time. We never, never resolved that. It remains, you know, did we help bring the Labour Party back to being electable? Or uh, did we just split the left and make sure that 
the Tories won for a few more elections. That's a, a debate to be had. But it was always came from the same, it always came from the same starting point. Do whatever you can to keep Conservatives out of power. Do whatever you can to promote the best progressive causes that look as if they've got the best chance of being elected. My father was a communist when he was young. He was first communist president of the Oxford Union. Went to the went to the Spanish Civil War as a as a student delegate, and um, he was always had he had quite extreme views. He gave up communism after the Hitler-Stalin Pact, but he was passionate about CND. He always thought the end the world end of the world was coming. Oh, really? natural millenarian he was absolutely convinced that we were all going to die from the nuclear bomb when we went on holiday and he realized he'd left the suicide pills behind had to turn the car around and go home again to collect this enormous great jar of pills to give us all is this when you were a child this was happening i was a child yes what (laughs) what effect did that have on you i think we were all quite scared but, you know, it was kind of a ton of Neville shoot on the beach where there were very graphic descriptions around of exactly what radiation does to you mm. after the falls. And, you know, when I went on, on all the master marches quite young, you know, we were carrying banners saying what you can do in the four minute warning system, the last four minutes of your life, what can you do with it? You know, run a mile, boil an egg. We were very versed in, in uh, the, the horrible details of nuclear of what nuclear holocaust would mean he then went on to become to set up a commune it was a catastrophe uh <laughs> sustainable farming uh a whole lot of kind of hippies moved in and he divided the house up between all of these people none of them really wanted to do any digging they all wanted to go out and, and do primal screaming in the forest uh-huh. they didn't really want to do the digging he was a great one for digging and uh gardening so he did all the vegetable growing and they did almost none. And in the end, of course, it fell apart. But that was because he sincerely believed that I, living in London by then grown up, would come begging to the door for a cabbage when... Uh, to survive, when, when the apocalypse came. When the apocalypse came. So he was always kind of expecting the worst in every way. Wow. Unfortunately... Uh, despite him having brought us up not just as atheists, but as rabidly anti-clerical and shaking his fist at the sky all the time, up sort of conversations with God, how dare you do this? How do you should have given us a clue, perhaps. In the very end of his life, he turned to religion, which appalled uh. uh, us all. He suffered from terrible depressions. So you had to kind of forgive him as saying, well, anything that seems in any way to soothe him, because... Something Nothing. hopeful at the end. He felt it was a, a hopeful thing to think. I think it was so much fear of death, but just these appalling, appalling, serious clinical depressions. He had electroconvulsive treatment, mm. and religion sort of seemed, except it didn't seem to me to make him very happy because he couldn't answer any of the questions. Why are we suffering in this way? So now a lot of Christians who read his Christian writings. Um, says, yeah, well, you wait, you know, when, when you're dying, you'll go the way of your father. So I'll keep testing myself, not... I don't all. think that's ever going to happen. You're, it doesn't... No. Knowing you, I, I don't think that that's going to happen. I regard it as an absolute betrayal of, 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 of your, a lifetime of rational thought. And the idea that you lose your marbles just because you're dying, I do hope it doesn't happen to me. 
So in, in the round then, what do you think, what do you think the effect of, of your father's life and his example and his values has been on your own approaches, views, opinions? I think uh, a genuine sense of the unfairness of things, of the unfairness of the world. And we knew how lucky we were, how privileged we were. We'd had privileged lives, educations, um, and we knew the difference between people who work with their hands and people who work with their brain. And I think it was very important to be brought up, perhaps with a natural sense of guilt. Uh, is, that, is that what you felt as, as privileged people? You were educated to feel not just fortunate, but a little bit ashamed of it? Yes, embarrassed. The hypocrisy. What were we doing? Why didn't we give everything away? Why didn't we give every, all of our pay away so we just got the minimum wage? If we'd been Mahatma Gandhi, that's what we would have done. But I don't think you can really have a politics that requires everybody to be a saint. And we were not saints. But we did live with uh, keen awareness and often much self-mockery. You know, and, and, and after all, we get it from the right all the time, the sort of spectator, telegraph, daily mail types, endlessly mocking anyone on the left who hasn't given away. All if you're left wing, why are you so rich? That's what Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And the fact that we all bought, you know, people of my age, a humble house in the late 60s that then turns into being unbelievably valuable, suddenly... We have a whole lot more wealth. Oh, I see. So you're all these these wealthy lefties, um, not through anything anybody did or invested in, but just by simply living long enough in a house you've bought quite cheaply. Things of this sort are moral dilemmas, I think, for people on the left all the time. I think we all live. It's very annoying when the right accuses of it, because uh, if you if you believe that wealth is justified. You can sit very comfortably and very smugly. If you think that wealth isn't justified, you live a, a more uncomfortable life where you have to explain things to yourself all the time, justify yourself. And how do you justify it then? I mean, why don't you give everything away or some or more away? I'm not good enough. <laughs> I'm not nice enough. That's why I'm not a vegan, you know. <laughs> I feel like I'm trying my best, but I can't. I'm not good enough in it. Absolutely. I mean, think of all the ways in which we're not good enough. We'll never be good enough. If you think of, of, of the ideal world, the ideal way we should live, how we should give everything away, how we should live commonly sharing things, how we should devote our life to doing good to other people. Well, that asks a lot. Um, you do what you can. and uh, But you also try and construct a politics which other people might support but I think if you said to everybody if you want to vote Labour you've got to be somebody who's willing to give everything away I don't think you get far with politics you've got to be have a, a measure of, of realism you've got to persuade people and it's very difficult so is your political or talk about more, more about persuasion actually because that's an interesting concept that you know some people believe in and some people don't but um it, it seems from what you've just said that your political activism although it might be to some extent generated by a little bit of of guilt or certainly a sense of your good fortune is also um something that is is necessary for you You feel that it's nest in your position of privilege you feel that it's an obligation therefore to be politically active to try and change the system society so that everyone benefits is that a fair account of your 
motivations. Yeah. I think you have an obligation to do the most you can. As you say, you might be able to be a bit vegetarian if you can't quite be vegan. Well, it's better to be something than nothing. It's better to try, better to campaign, better to fight for the right causes. And then I've done it mostly through writing and through arguing and reporting and writing books. Um, the, one of the first books I wrote, I started out life, left, left Oxford feeling... I can't possibly be a journalist. I know nothing about the world. Uh, what do I know except my comfortable life amongst my left-wing intellectual family? We weren't ridiculously rich, but we just, you know, like any professional family, earning perfectly well. And so I set off and took jobs all around the country. I went and worked in the uh, soap factory in Port Sunlight. I worked in a car parts factory in Birmingham. I worked in a, uh, a cake factory, Lions Cake Factory in London. I worked in a hospital as a ward orderly. I joined the Women's Army for a bit. And in the end, wrote a book about it called The Working Life because I felt I didn't know enough about ordinary people's ordinary working lives. It wasn't about grotesque poverty. It was about ordinary working class life and people earning a just about enough living to keep going. And I think that was an important part of the start of my writing career, that from then onwards, I wrote quite a lot about work and the appalling, appalling behavior of many employers. Um, it was a time of when trade unionism was very important and succeeding. And it felt like a time of endless progress because pay was improving, because conditions were improving. You know, one factory act by one factory act, right from the beginning of you know, the Industrial Revolution, we yeah. steady progress of lives getting better. But then, of course, that all stopped at the end of the 1970s. We were technically the most equal country we had ever been to the end of the 1970s. Then we went into the 1980s and an explosion of, un of inequality. When the lid came off the top of high top earnings, we saw stratospheric uh, earnings that hadn't been uh, the, the case before. And people at the bottom were kind of nailed down. Because I went back and did that exercise again and wrote yeah. and went back to, uh, uh, not to the same, mostly the same places, because most of those factories had closed down, but did a lot of different um, manual jobs, including going back to the same hospital. When I took my payslip uh, from that hospital, from, from 30 years before, in real terms, my pay had fallen by nearly a third. Right. Uh, because of all the things that happened, I was now working for an agency, not for the NHS. Uh, all of the brutalities that had happened. So they were structural changes, the combined effect of which had been to push your own pay down, basically. Push the pay at the bottom down. Uh, most manual jobs were now outsourced. They were not unionised. Unions were, were fractured and, 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 and weak. And so most people's jobs were not protected. Now, of course, we've got all the gig economy gods and see it zero hours, people not knowing from one week to the next how many hours work they're going to get or whether they can put bread on the table. Things have gone backwards in a way that I would never have predicted when I wrote that first book, which was slightly optimistic about the progress that unions were making in improving people's lives. And I right. feel that's no longer the case. It's Because it sounds like the first time you were sort of almost like you felt that you were going on a journey to see a different way of living and a world where things were getting better. And then the second time you were sort of almost sending dispatches from uh, uh, the front. 
a very, a very a, well, yeah that's interesting contrast is it is it poverty that concerns you or is it inequality or is it or is it both what, what conceptually is the thing that you what do you identify as being the thing that you value the elimination of I think it's extreme inequality, the mm. obscenity of what people are earning when they're earning, you know, 10 million a year. Uh, and the obscenity of people turning up in food banks now, which is a new phenomenon of the last decade. And that shocks me. I think inequality is quite a difficult thing to campaign on. You know, we've tried this a lot of times. It's been experimented with pollsters. People are uneasy about the word because most people think uh, a measure of inequality is inevitable, and, and it probably is. We're not talking about, you know, communism or flattening everybody out in some kind of Maoist, originally Maoist way. Look mm. at China now. Um, so I think it's easier to talk to people about extreme um, poverty and extreme wealth, and that does make almost everybody indignant and feel it's, that that's no way we should be living. Um, yeah. But yes, I think I, I think also the you know the dishonesty of being told we live in a meritocracy. We now in a live in a less meritocratic world, and yet people, rich and poor, believe that somehow they are to blame or they are being rewarded. You know, people I've worked with would say, "Oh well, if only I'd tried harder at school, I could have got on and gone to university." But I messed about and I didn't get on. And the fact that the school failed them and that they started out with very little chance of succeeding in school because of their background, because the school didn't do enough for them, doesn't come into it. They sort of accept that, well, people who pass their exams deserve uh, the prizes that they get. Though they do get shocked when they see how astronomical some of the prizes are. Yes. Yeah. It sounds almost like, again, that's your sort of, that's your own privileged and fortunate upbringing, colouring how you see the situation. Like it doesn't, it doesn't occur to you to say, oh, I, I failed, the school failed me. It occurs to you to say they should have done better by you. You know, you've got an expectation, Polly, of, of high levels of support and service and, uh, and so on. And you expect that for everyone. That's right. Partly because we've become very Americanized, individualized. So it's it's about anyone can make it if you try. The great American myth, which is even less true in America than it is here. And people have, have absorbed that since the failure of trade unions, departure of trade unions from people's lives. They no longer have a political education that makes them see themselves as a part of a system that benefits some and disbenefits others. And so they see it as just an individual matter, which, of course, it isn't. Mm. We live in a society where, you know, collective solutions are what works uh, and expecting everybody to make it on their own uh, isn't going to improve uh, inequality. It doesn't sound like there's anything sort of utopian in your view of, of what society can be like. It sounds like, you know, this is, is this, this is almost like doing the best you can again um yeah. society doing the best it can and it, and it can be much better but then i suppose that's quite radical these days is to say that it could be things can be better they don't have to be this way well that's what's so depressing is that to to, to look for any progressive improvements or reforms now seems a bit utopian we seem not to be anywhere near it and so to say you know we should be paying higher taxes we should be more scandinavian uh Look, look at how well Scandinavia does. They come at the top of all the happiness leagues. The, 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 the well-off as well as the poorer are better off all the way through. It is a better society. And people kind of get that. 
But when you turn around and say, that means you've got to vote for paying higher taxes, and it means pretty much everybody paying higher taxes. No, not just the hyper-rich. It means a higher tax society, the state spending more. But then it means you get great nursery schools, great schools, great universities that are free. You get um, all of the things that make physical surroundings beautiful, public buildings, public parks. I mean, Mrs Thatcher always used to say, you will always spend the pound in your pocket better than the state will, to which I would always reply, the opposite is true. There is nothing you can buy in a shop that is worth what we buy collectively in a wonderful health system, in a wonderful education system, in beautiful parks, public buildings, heritage well kept up, arts, sports stadiums, all of the things that we're proud of when we think what makes us proud of our country. All of those things come from what we buy together collectively. But that's the message that I always try to put across. Uh, unfortunately, I'm writing The Guardian where everybody agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask about that. I mean, these days, um, I, you, it comes back to something you said earlier about persuasion um, and the value of persuasion. And I think that's actually quite an interesting concept because I would never have... Um, thought to question, you know, the importance of persuasion and persuasion as a, as a given. You know, we live in an open society. We have to argue our cases and our causes and our ideas um, and persuade people to come around to, to our point of view if we can and, you know, hope to hope to do so. Um, but persuasion isn't terribly popular at the moment. There's a lot of people, growing numbers of people who think that sort of coercion is better, you know, and they've got to force a change or silence people. Um, and I don't want to get into sort of the culture war aspects of that because, you know, it's so multifarious that it's impossible to speak about it as one thing. But for you, as a, as a, as a writer, um, is, is that an important value to you? And do you feel that... Um, uh, yeah, reflecting on perhaps the, the, the Guardian as well, where maybe already everyone agrees with you. Do you think that um, the, the are there values associated with being a persuader? Are there opinions associated with being a persuader? Do you see yourself as a persuader? Well, a would-be persuader. Uh, do I feel I can actually put my finger on anything that's being persuaded by what I write? I don't know. But uh, I think it is... All I can do is to go out there to report things, to show people what's happening, to uh, to use all the incredibly good social research which there is around and put flesh on it, make it real. Uh, a lot of it's quite academic and it needs kind of translating into human terms in a in newspaper with cases, with people uh, in one instance after other, whether this is going to be about domestic abuse or whether it's going to be about people resorting to food banks despite working three jobs um i think you know it, it it's hard if you are talking to the converted but for some reason or another can't think why the daily mail never asked me to write for them. <laughs> didn't david cameron once say that the conservative i mean he's obviously old old ancient history now but didn't david cameron once say that the conservative party had to be a bit more like polly toynbee he did. This was, of course, in the days before he was elected, when he was hugging huskies and doing extraordinary things and promising community activism and the great big society and all sorts of stuff that never happened. So I was rather shocked when he used an image I had. I had an image on my book about work, hard work. I had an image at the start that of society being like a camel train crossing the desert. And at what point, when the ones at the top 
have gone over far beyond the horizon and the ones at the back are no longer visible by the ones at the front. At what point can they still be said to be in the same camel train, in the same society at all? There comes a bit where people are just living such separate lives that we are no longer a society. And so he quite liked that at that point. He found it handy for some reason. I can't think why. He didn't do anything about it. Uh, and he's been quite good, as far as we can see now, at attempting to put himself further and further in the front of that camel train with a few few more millions. So you don't feel he was persuaded? He's not one of your successes in persuasion terms? I suppose I was flattered in the sense that he thought that somehow referencing me might persuade some softer uh, people in the middle to yeah yeah um i hope it didn't (laughs) (laughs) hi this is andrew appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from humanist uk the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. Politics is obviously a pretty all-consuming for you and we've talked about this before and coming from a very political family, immersed in politics all, all the time, um, spending your life and, and, and career in politics. Do, do you ever think it's too much politics? I do wonder because given that life on the left in my lifetime has been mostly losing, losing and losing again. Uh, you know, the Conservatives have been in power twice, more than twice as much as Labour during my lifetime. Um, you, it is a, a destiny of, of, of despair and gloom punctuated by moments of euphoria you know when Obama is 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 elected what are they actually 1997 and and Blair's arrival the sheer euphoria of people who poured from all over the country down early that morning to stand outside Downing Street um you get little moments. I mean, 1964 I, I was leafleting in 1964 and I can remember that breaking 18 years of conservative power. But it's been, you know, thin, thin gruel, <laughs> really. And every time the conservatives come back, you see a lot of the progress made being rolled back again. So, yes, I do wonder whether it is a kind of madness. It's like supporting a completely lousy football team that is never going to get anywhere. It's just going to make you weak. Um, but... On the other hand, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, particularly looking back at things my family have supported, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, the causes they supported won in the end. And there they were fighting against capital punishment, corporal punishment, fighting for Irish home rule, they were atheists, fighting for women's votes, um, fighting for higher education for the lower classes. All of these, incidentally, were debates at the Oxford Union that my great-grandfather lost. Um, Another one, war is out of date, lost. I'm glad to say he lost one on temperance because he was temperance himself. Oh, yes, of course. I'm glad we never got prohibition. But But now he would find all these things have, have come to pass. They've all happened. All of the things that people laugh at now as woke, 
uh, or as feminazis or as virtue signaling, they're pretty likely to come about eventually because the sheer reason, the sheer rationality, the sheer good causes in the end win out. You know, think how long it took to get gay rights, think mm. how, let alone, you know, gay marriage. Um, of course, a lot of things haven't been won. CND, not won. Um, possibly, nuclear, for all we know, nuclear stockpiles may be coming, becoming even more dangerous, the world more dangerous. I'm not sure. The climate now is the big one. Mm. Well, at least people accept that it's happening. So much too slowly. The argument uh, has been one that it isn't true. I mean, all of the deniers have been done for. The BBC no longer tolerates deniers. They don't have to pretend that they're there. So I think if you take the long view, even if you don't win elections, you very often do persuade, change people. Sheer force of evidence that in the end can't be denied. And so that's a way, I suppose, of saying that the, the lost causes are won in the end, even though you might not. So do you see yourself as making a contribution to an ongoing enterprise? Is that what you're saying? Because you clearly you position yourself in a bigger story. Um, for you, it's a family story, but it's also a national story, a story about you know how uh, things um, have improved. Does that is that one of the is that important to you? Having your place in that, yes. in that arc of progress. And as you and I often talk about, you know, the cause is still to be one of many. Uh, right to die is yeah, the, big is one. Big one now, and it's a big one that has been blocked by religionists on the whole, uh, and by false arguments. But increasingly now, you see, you know. The public has been won over. Yes. It's destructive politicians for many, many years now. The public has been on the side of people who have seen enough of people dying in agony uh, in their own families and know that they themselves want the right to die at a time of their own choosing when they've had enough of life. And only each individual can make that decision. And it is absolutely monstrous that the state should say, no, you must suffer because... Uh, only God disposes and you have to wait till God calls you. Um, that's the basic reason why not. And I think we'll win it. I think we'll win it reasonably soon. Yeah. And so yet again, we can remind ourselves that even without winning elections, we can win important issues. I suppose that's why persuasion, why I latched onto what you said about persuasion, which is that it's sort of, it's a reminder that there's more than one way to win a, a, a fight and maybe you know maybe if you were looking back on your own life you might and asking yourself sort of what you did that had most impact was it the formal political um i'm not suggesting your life is over by the way Polly, i'm just saying it. <laughs> <laughs> were you many decades from now to be looking back <laughs> and, to, and to say sort of was it the formal political involvement you know the sdp or joining or rejoining the Labour Party or, you know, being active in elections, the formal politics that made the biggest impact? Or was it, like you're sort of suggesting, I think, the the winning the arguments in the in the in society, you know, changing the public's mind. I mean, Dignity Dying is a and, and assisted dying generally is a good example of that. It's a situation where the public once had one opinion you know, 30 or 40 years ago, and now they have a completely different opinion in droves. And it's a result 
of people's own experience, but also of the arguments. So do you think, you know, which is it you think that's the most, had the most impact, the formal politics or the, or the persuasion well, in the world of ideas? Given the miserable failure of the politics, <laughs> I have to opt for persuasion. But I think I would look, for instance, I mean, I wrote for 11 years, I wrote a column on the Guardian Women's page. The Guardian Women's page was absolutely at the forefront. Mary Stott, who founded it at a time when all other women's pages were about woolies and jellies and how to keep your man. There was the Guardian writing about uh, orgasms and the menopause and, uh, and, and things of this sort. And uh, it, it, I think we did set the pace and suddenly lots of women's magazines and other women's pages began to pick up that actually what women, what women wanted to read about was the hardships of their own lives. Mm. And I think the campaigns that we ran non-stop for free childcare, for uh, nursery schooling, all of these things existed. I mean, there was no universal free uh, uh, nursery schooling until... Mm the Labour government. Well, even that Labour government needed persuading by the likes of us and the new cohort of women MPs who came in who were much backed by women's movements of all kinds. It gave them muscle to get that through because in the beginning, I don't think Blair and Brown thought that was particularly on their agenda. By the end, it was by far their biggest achievement. Yeah. So, yes, you can do an awful lot outside of politics. I think um, each time you push hard, you make some progress and one shouldn't despair of that. It, it's a wide range of causes that you've, that you've espoused and that you're involved in. And I suppose that's partly the job of a columnist is you've got to write different things every, <laughs> every week. Um, but are there values that unite them? Are there sort of core values that you think everything you've been committed to from poverty reduction to assisted dying to, to women's rights? Are there, is there a hard core of values behind it that's they're all expressions of? Yes, it's social justice. It's uh, not doing people down. It's defending the underdog, even when they're unpopular. It's very easy to support people who are in the majority. It's, it's looking after minorities, whether they're ethnic minorities, whether they're disabled people or uh, people left out, left behind. Uh, and it's a difficult cause because in a sense if say the Labour Party is seen as being only for uh, the homeless and only for people in extremists they lose their core support because people say well it's not really about people like me so you have to constantly be finding ways to engage a larger number of people in seeing why uh, protecting the weakest is actually in everybody's interest and creates a better society for everybody. I mean, sometimes you might do it through crime. You know, if people are very poor, they will mm. commit crimes on the whole. Well, more often than people who've got lots of money who, well, commit different Well, I was going <laughs> But they don't commit crimes like knocking down your front door. Um, these are cynical ways of persuading people, but you use whatever ammunition you've got. But yes, I think it is that idea that it is not enough to sit here having a nice life oneself. Uh, and I've been brought up to feel that. Mm. We are very privileged. We are very lucky. We've had everything opened up for us. Me and my children, my forebears, my grandchildren. When you've had all these opportunities, when you've had all these doors open for you effortlessly, when you see how many doors are slammed in other people's faces, when you see, uh, you know, 
children who are at school with your children, who you know from day one, are going to struggle. And your children, if you're lucky, will pretty much glide through without too much effort. When you see the children who arrive with, you know, no lunchbox, wrong trainers, not the right uniform, right from day one, uh, inferior children treated by the others as inferior because they're just so poor. Uh, and they've had so so little already by then, and you know their trajectory through life mm. is going to be is likely to be not inevitable, but the chances are very different to your own children. You can't just set that to one side and say, "Well, it's nothing to do with me. I'm just going to look after me and mine, and as long as we can push our way through, as long as I can get them into the top of everything, to hell with everybody else." And that is very much the conservative attitude. Oh, well, they didn't try hard enough, or they, their parents have been irresponsible. If their parents had tried hard enough, done better for them, they're probably alcoholics and drug addicts. You know, the Daily Mail feeds them and the Sun material all the time, daily, as to why you don't need to care for these people. They're on benefits because they're scroungers, because they're useless. Uh, they drain away any human sympathy for people less fortunate than themselves. So you you said you said a very interesting thing there, which is that you know you can't just say oh you know why is that why can't you what is it that that, that stops you from saying that you know behind all of that what is it that makes you care? Shame, guilt, uh, a sense of injustice. A sense I mean, of injustice. Possibly. It is something I, I mean, I, I find it is interesting that my family has been of that state of mind for so long that it is something we sort of inherit. You just take uh, it for granted, actually, that there should be more equality. Do you the because I, I, I wondered when I asked the question of what it was that united all these causes for you. I wondered if it if you might say something about and you, you didn't. But there's just maybe just another way of coming at the question that maybe what united them was some sense of human dignity, because. It seemed to me that in what you've said so far, sort of the thing that if I to take two different examples, assisted dying and extreme poverty, you know, everything you've said implies that you've got some sense, at least, of, of, of just a basic concept of human dignity, the dignity of choice, the freedom of that and so on, that you just feel every person should have. Is that is that what actually is behind this? I think that's true. And I think it would make us all happier. I think everybody would feel better if they didn't see homeless people lying in the street that had to step over. Uh, if they didn't see people suffering in one way or another in ways that we know we can remedy. I think that's what makes a happier society and what we know about the Scandinavians is that on the whole, because they are more equal, they are also happier, they feel better. I think a lot of the attitude of, well, I'm going to live in my gated community and lock my doors and look after me and mine is a kind of fear and unhappiness. It doesn't lead you to feel good about yourself. You, it fills you with hate for the scary, dangerous people out there who are trying to take what you've got. But I don't think it's a way conducive to living together. I mean, we are all social animals and People do are aware of that. They do feel that too. They feel strongly about how society, you know, talk to people who maybe vote conservatives. They have ideas about how society should be and how it should be better. And it's not that people really don't care. 
I just think they have you know wrong remedies and wrong blame very often. Blame is the easy one to reach for because it absolves you and mm. it puts you up. You can blame other people. You can feel all right about yourself. You've been quite scathing about conservatives, but just then you said something a bit different, which is that you know the people who are conservatives do have their own views on making life better. And do you do you believe in do you believe that? I mean, because uh, uh, so far you've sort of quite often implied that conservatives are just basically selfish and evil. Um, but just now you hinted that perhaps you thought that there were conservatives who, I mean, I'm sure we both know people of all different political persuasions who are motivated into their political choices, essentially because they think it's the way to make people's lives better. And people who do good works and are philanthropists and all sorts of things, that's all true. I think that very often they sort of get it wrong, but I think everybody has to have a self-image of themselves. Everyone wants to see themselves as a nice person. Yes. I, I don't think it, I mean, it, it's interesting that people who talk to prisoners a lot, for instance, prisoners have uh, a self-image that they're not really bad because I don't think you can live with an idea that you're an obnoxious person. Even if you've done a terrible crime, uh, you may not really be that person. It was an accident. It was something that happened. It's not really who you are. And in a way, it means that you ought to be able to find a way to reach into that part of everybody that sees themselves as a nice person and bring out what's best about them and encourage them to have a better social view and how they and how how they uh, interpret that in terms of making a better society you have to believe that people are persuadable it's always a question of finding the right levers or the right approach and uh, banging them on the head which i do quite often is probably not the best way um you i would talk about something quite different which is that when you were president of uh British Humanist Association as it then was Humanist UK. When you were president, you came to speak to the annual conference of celebrants and you gave a, a, a talk there that everyone just enjoyed so much. And it, but it was also quite a surprise to people because you didn't talk about the sort of things that we've been talking about now, the sort of things that people associate with you, the politics and the, and the campaigning and so on. You talked about uh, human imagination, the world inside ourselves um, and, you know, the creativity uh, of, of celebrants but also more generally and I just wondered if that was part of you that um, you, you you express uh, as often as, as these political expressions because you are a writer and a communicator and a creative person um, as well and so I thought that well that was interesting anyway, do, do you do you feel that you have important um, beliefs and opinions and thoughts about our inner life human creativity those sorts of topics that perhaps you don't get a chance to talk about so often that's true, because it doesn't really fit into the context of a kind of Guardian political column. Uh, but I'm very glad you remembered that, because I feel it's very important, and you've done well with this too, that with uh, humanism, people often criticise it for being dry, uh, overly rational. It doesn't take account of most of human experience. I mean, we've been talking about intellectual things, things that you think of with your mind, perhaps more than with your emotion. What is plainly true is that all of us, all day long, have an imagination that is working away like mad. And even as you and I are talking, we're also thinking other things and feeling other things. And we live in our 
kind of spirit world, you might say. This is nothing to do with an eternal soul, but it's to do with that part of us that is well outside the ordinary rational bit. And I think that humanism, you know, is good, needs to embrace that too, and celebrants need to embrace that too, that we all realize we're wildly irrational creatures. We are full of ambivalent emotions and passions. Uh, the wonderment of the world itself is something that we should all be very aware of, and that it is outside the realm of, of reason, really, that one looks about at how things happen, how things are, not just nature, or but uh, how we treat each other well and badly. All of these things, all of these passions of human life, you know, falling in love or being in despair, these parts of human experience are really important to describe, to embrace. And there's always a danger that the religious run off with that, saying, oh, that all belongs to us. Uh, that's what God does. And you say, no, it's nothing to do with God. It's the miracle of being human. What makes us very different to animals, which as far as we know, have very little of that going on inside them. It's what makes us extraordinarily special. I think I do have an idea that humanism is about elevating the value of the human experience. And we should talk a lot about that too. Uh, I mean, that's not a... <laughs> it's not a startling thought. It's only that I felt our celebrants are often very good at that. Yeah, yeah. They connect with people, but also they do it through their own creativity as well. And I think that's, they give meaning to experience. That's what they're doing in their job. Yes, and it doesn't need God. You can talk about life and death, new life, christenings, funerals, celebrating lives. Um, and people say, well, you know, if you don't have God, there is no sense of the mysterious. Uh, this is nonsense. We are surrounded by mystery all the time, by unexplained things, by uh, surprises. You could call it, in a way, sort of superstitions. I think human beings are quite superstitious mm -hmm. in a way, but that's all right, too. We're not, we're not dry, rational creatures. And the more that humanism embraces that as well, the more I think we will pull people in to say, yes, we have plenty to talk about that is about our emotional lives and not just about how do we win the next campaign. Yeah. Your, well, I think the last thing we mentioned, just because it ha ha we have to mention, I think, is that you are the only, as far as I know, president of Humanist UK, descended from another president of Humanist UK, um, because your great, great, grandfather that's right isn't it great no, no your great grandfather i'm sorry well you must have known him then i mean he was alive when you were alive didn't you? anyway uh, as a child I just about. he was very generous with all his great grandchildren and he sent us a pound every christmas and <laughs> it was anyway it was gilbert murray that it was gilbert murray um who was our president in the late 20s and um in case people listening don't know him, I mean, he was a great classicist, a great internationalist, a great liberal campaigner, not a pacifist. I think he broke with Bertrand Russell over pacifism, I seem to uh, remember from my humanist reading. And um, and he, he actually, I suppose, was a bit more of the sort of humanist that you've just described at, at the end there, because he wasn't a scientist, unlike a lot of the, um, the guys who were around at the time. He was more of a put more weight, I suppose, on the human experience. 
on, on emotion and so on. Do you, do you ever think about the, the the connections between you and him, given your unique connection in the roles that you've had? Well, I only really discovered that the other day. I was very surprised. I mean, I knew about him. Of course, he's great liberal causes and all of that. And he's, he's wonderful tra- translations. And now it's the very old-fashioned of, yes. of the great classics. But I discovered that, you know, Conway Hall, home of rationalist thought and humanism, uh, he had spoken often from that stage. My grandfather, the historian Arnold Toynbee, who was a great proponent of the League of Nations and was uh, 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 was at the Treaty of Versailles and walked out of it in rage, was a huge uh, internationalist. He'd spoken there. My father, as a communist, had spoken there. Actually, he got booed off the stage once because he got very drunk and lost his notes. <laughs> 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 Several occasions. That's never and- happened to you. Oh, no, first time I there, I'd come back from Rhodesia. I'd been working for Amnesty and I'd been uh, evicted by, by Ian, the Ian Smith regime. And it was the first time I ever spoke in public, absolutely terrified about the, the monstrosity of the Ian Smith uh, regime and how what was then the Harold Wilson government should be invading and uh, throwing them out and imposing democracy. So it's quite a nice feeling about the Conway Hall that we've all spoken there. But, um, you know, all different times, different issues, but all of the think the same theme that uh, we can do better and challenging the establishment that says things are all fine as they are. Social justice, human frailty, political activism, persuasion, human imagination and doing the best you can. Polly Toynbee, thank you for telling us what you believe. Thank you very much. That was Polly Toynbee telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a supporter or a member. You can also, to find out more about humanism, purchase the Sunday Times best-selling The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops. 